If you want to find your place in your Bible in the Revelation chapter 1, if you're just joining us, we had a couple of weeks where we studied in the Revelation, and then I was gone for two weeks. And I'm going to go back, and we're going to pick up a few details from where we have been, and then we're going to finish chapter 1 tonight. You say, Pastor, at this rate, we won't finish the Revelation till Jesus comes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know that. God willing, God willing, next Sunday night we will cover chapters 2 and 3 at one, in one service. I can't promise that that will happen, but that's the intended purpose or the plan to happen. That we cover chapters 2 and 3. There's a pattern that develops related to the churches that you, when you see the pattern, uh, you can just go through and you can pick out that pattern uh, where the churches are, are rebuked and they're called to repent and so forth. But uh, tonight I want to go back and I want to make sure since it's been a couple of weeks and sort of had things broken up, I want to make sure that we remember where uh, we have been. And uh, so let's begin by reading verses uh, 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent me, or he, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. By the way, uh, before I say anything else, this is a running commentary. I'm trying not to sermonize. You know, usually you take passages and you turn them into sermons, and I'm trying not to sermonize as we go through this uh, study of the book of Revelation, though I may m make a mistake occasionally and uh, end up preaching on something. But uh, this is a running commentary. And we begin by learning that what we're going to be finding in this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a disclosure of Jesus Christ. It is a disclosure about Jesus Christ. But we're going to learn things about Jesus Christ in this book. But it's also a disclosure that comes from Jesus. And John begins here, and he tells us that this message started with the Father. It was given to the Son. From the Son, it was given to an angel. And then the angel delivers it to his messenger, John. And John is the one who is writing down the words that are given. We know that this John is the one that was uh, the disciple of Jesus. In verse 2 it says, who bore witness to the Word of God. I mean, he was there to see Jesus. He was there to witness the miracles of Jesus. He was there to see him walk on the water. He was there to see him multiply uh, the bread in his hands. He was there. Uh, he, he's the one that he says, John says in 1 John, that he's seen, uh, he's touched, he's handled. John is the one. This is the one who was a testimony to, to Christ, to all things that he saw. Uh, stop and think about John for a moment. He's called the beloved disciple. Uh, in the Gospel of John, you never see him referring to himself or naming himself, uh, but he's called the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. At the end of the Gospel of John, when the disciples are in the upper room, uh, they are reclining at the, at the table where they're observing the Passover. We, we say sitting at the table, but they didn't traditionally sit at the table like you and I sit at a table. The table was down low. Uh, they were almost stretched out with their feet out behind them, 
and maybe on one elbow holding themselves up and the other hand able to grab off the table the different elements to be able to eat and bring them to their mouths. And one of the greatest statements about John at that upper room meeting, that last upper room meeting, it says that John was leaning against the breast of Christ. Can you imagine John heard and felt the heartbeat of Jesus? Don't you wish that we could feel and we could hear the heartbeat of Jesus. Well, this is the, this is the, the man, John, that we're talking about. He, he's the one who's seen all of this. He's the one who's witnessed all of this. And this message has come from God the Father through God the Son to this angel and is being given to John. When you pick up in verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This book has to be read. As much of the New Testament was read in the churches, people didn't have their own copies of the New Testament. Aren't you thankful we have a Bible that's uh, completed and printed and bound, and we can carry it with us? Uh, Somebody sent me a little meme this afternoon and um, talking about... uh, the, the Chinese, there was a group of young Chinese who were receiving a Bible for the very first time, and, and they were just ravaging the boxes trying to get their copy of, of the Word of God. And then he, right beneath it, it said, and we can't even find the copies that we own. Um, but, you know, here, here's a situation where they didn't have a bound copy of the Bible, and they had to have the Bible read to them out loud. A lot of that was because uh, that was the only way to communicate it to a vast number of people quickly. Uh, some of that was because uh, there was illiteracy, and a lot of people could not read. And so the Bible was read aloud. That's what he means here, who reads. He's talking about the public reading of the words. As a matter of fact, uh, the apostle uh, Paul gave to young Timothy the instruction to give attention to the reading of Scripture. And the word for reading is the public reading of the Scripture. To take care in how you read the Bible. That's what people are hearing. That's what they've got to remember. That's what they've got to memorize. They won't have their own copy. They've got to make sure that they can hear it. And John says that this revelation that came from the Father through the Son to the angel and to him, the one who was a witness of Jesus and his testimony and his mighty works, is to be read It's to be heard by the people so that they can do the things, they can obey the things that it teaches. Now, it begins in earnest in verse 4. He, after a greeting and an opening, he begins in earnest in verse 4. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. If you remember, we talked about this, but Asia is modern-day Turkey, and We're going to learn the names of the seven churches in just a few minutes in verse 11. Uh, We're going to read about those seven churches in greater detail next week in chapters 2 and 3. But he's writing to these seven churches. Uh, That's where you're going to find believers gathered. That's where you're going to find a pastor who can take the message and who can open it and he can read it to his people. This message of the revelation is to be given to the churches because in this revelation... 
is the revelation of Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do and what his plan is for the future and where we as believers all fit into that plan and how God is going to set everything right. Can you see how that would be encouraging, especially in a first century Roman society where they were persecuted and they were despised, they lost their jobs, they lost their lives for the cause of Christ? Can you imagine hearing the encouraging word that it may be tough right now, but Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to set all things right. And so he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, he says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the eternality of God. That's the eternality of Christ. He is, he was, he is, he always will be. You realize that you're not uh, one who was, you didn't exist. The Mormons teach that uh, there are spirit babies out in the spirit world somewhere, uh, and they're waiting on bodies, and so that's why Mormons have to have multiple children so these spirit babies can have bodies to inhabit. And as humans, they, they can then become, uh, they can become uh, rulers of their own world at some point, and they can then have spirit babies, and they can have people who will give bodies to those spirit babies. It's, it's a crazy system. That's not what he's talking about when he talks here. He says, grace to you and peace from who is, who was, who is to come. This is about Christ. He is the one who is the eternal, everlasting one. We had a beginning. Our beginning was at conception, and we don't have an ending. We're either in eternity with God in a place called heaven, or we're separated from God in a place called hell. One of the two. There's no, there is no middle ground. And so he says, grace to you. Aren't you thankful that many times that the New Testament books open that you find these words, grace and peace, grace and peace. Are you grateful for the grace of God? Are you grateful for the peace of God? Well, it comes from the one who is the eternal one and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, there's some debate as to who the seven spirits are. It could be angels, and if they're angels, then that capital S needs to be a little s. But it's also possible, according to Isaiah, that this is the Holy Spirit, and this is one of the definitions or one of the descriptions, I should say, of the Holy Spirit, uh, that he's given a sevenfold ministry. And seven becomes a very vital number throughout the book of Revelation. You see the number seven repeated over and over again. Uh, it's a number that uh, we'll be talking about there are seven lamps, there's seven eyes, you know, there's, there's the seven trumpets, there's the seven bowls. Seven just keeps coming up over and over. It speaks of completeness. It speaks of perfection. And so in my estimation, in my translation, in the New King James Version, my translation, it capitalizes the word spirits because it's, they're, they're assuming that he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and I see no reason that this is not the Holy Spirit. It doesn't change the meaning of the passage. But it's likely the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. But this is not only coming from the Father. He goes on, and from Jesus Christ. I love these next phrases. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And in three simple statements, we see Christ as prophet, priest, and king. He's prophet, proclaiming the truth of God. He's priest 
going before God and opening the way for man to have communion with God. And he's king. He's ruling over all of the affairs of mankind. He's ruler over the kings of the earth. Can, can we just stop here and let me sermonize for a moment? I don't like to watch the news anymore. Uh, you know, I, if I watch too much of the news, I can't sleep at night. Uh, I'm, I'm disturbed by the things that I see and I hear and how the world is changing so quickly and our children are growing up in a completely different world than the one that we grew up in. But you know what? I have to stop and remind myself that Jesus is still king over it all. And there's a plan that while I don't understand it, God can take even the sinfulness of mankind and work it all out to accomplish his purpose in the end. And, and he is the king. And we have to stop and remind ourselves he's the ruler over the kings of the earth. I mean, Proverbs says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he will. Do you believe the Lord can do that? Absolutely. Uh, the Lord can do that. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own body. I mentioned this. I'll mention it again. The word loved is in the continuous mode. It means that he goes on continuously. He never stops loving us. But the word washed is a once for all washing. He goes on forever loving us. He never stops loving us. But there's that moment in time for each of us who were believers in Jesus, when he washed us from our sins once and for all and forever. My sins, the penalty of my sins past is gone. The penalty of my sins present is gone. The penalty of my sins future is gone. And it's all because he has washed me. And how did he wash me? He washed me in his blood, right? It cost him his life. Uh, the sacrifice of Jesus on the, Cal on the cross of Calvary. Verse 6, and he's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. By telling us that we're priests, he's given us direct access to the Father ourselves. You don't have to go find a confessional and find a priest who will sit on the other side of a little screen that can listen to you confess your sins. All of us have sins to confess I'd be glad to listen if you'd like to start. But all of us have sins to confess. Aren't you thankful we can go directly to God and we can confess our sins? I don't trust you with what you know. I mean, I love all of you, but I know I don't trust me with what I know some days. You know what I mean? But Jesus, you can always trust. And he has, he has washed us from our sins. He's made us priests so that we can go right into the very throne room of the Father. And he's made us kings. Think about that. I, I'm not a king yet, although my sisters uh, used to say that he's King David because they thought being the brother, the only brother, the younger brother, that, that I was treated special and different than they were treated. And so I'd go to, I'd go to vacation and oh, King David's here. I'm not a king yet, but I can tell you one day we will rule and reign with Jesus. Um, and I don't know what all that means. I, I don't understand all the details of what it means that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. But when Jesus reigns on this earth for a thousand years, we're going to be 
We're going to be kings. We're going to be ruling with Christ, given some kind of responsibility. You know, I, I sometimes talk about heaven, and I don't sometimes, I often talk about heaven. And, uh, you know, heaven to me is, doesn't, sound like a, doesn't sound like heaven to be floating on a cloud, strumming a harp for all eternity. But that's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to be serving the Lord in some capacity. And then he says, verse 7, well, let me finish verse 6. To him be glory. He has this doxology that comes to an end. He, he comes with this great word of praise. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. I mean, he stops and he considers all that he's just been talking about, where this revelation has come from, what this revelation means, who this revelation is about, what it has done in his life, how it has changed his life, what he's seen, what he's experienced, what he's handled. And he stops and he just breaks out into praise. He just can't keep from giving glory to God. But then he says, verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds. Now please, there's two different comings of Christ. I, I shouldn't say it that way. There's one coming of Christ that's in two parts. There is the first part of his coming that is for his church. It's called the rapture. You don't find the word rapture in the Bible. If you go looking for it, it isn't there. But the Greek word that means to snatch away is there, which is our English word, or we would, we would term it in our English word. We would call it the rapture. And the Scripture tells us that before the tribulation period and before the millennial reign of Christ and before there is the new heaven and the new earth, that there's going to be a moment when the voice of the archangel and the trump of God will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive shall be translated up into the presence of the Lord. That's what we're looking for, by the way. I'm not looking for the tribulation. I'm not going to be there anyway. I'm not looking... Uh, uh, even at the second coming of Christ. Do so you realize at the second coming of Christ, you come back with him? I'm looking at this moment for the appearance of my Savior who's going to catch the living and the dead out of this world, out of their graves, wherever they're found, and the living wherever they're found into his very presence in the twinkling of an eye. Think about that, the twinkling of an eye. How fast is that? I, I knew at one time how fast that was. That's been measured. Go, go look it up. Go Google it. In the twinkling of an eye, we'll suddenly be made just like Jesus. We'll have a body that's no longer subject to the things that our bodies are subject to in this world. Have you discovered the older you get, your body, well, it's not as friendly as it used to be? You know, my little black book's got a lot of names with MD at the end of it. You know, that's not true. I don't have a black book, but you get the point. Um, you know, got a lot of, lot of names with MD at the end of it, and it seems like I'm visiting the doctors more and more than I ever used to visit them, and things hurt that I didn't even know I had. You know what I'm talking about. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be made like the body of Christ. It won't be subject to the curse of sin anymore. Thank God for that. May that come tonight. I'm, I, we had an old preacher that used to come to our church in Atlanta, and uh, he, he was an old guy, and uh, he, he loved to preach about the coming of Jesus, and he carried a handkerchief in his back pocket, and he would pull out his handkerchief, and he'd wave his handkerchief, and he'd say, I'm not looking for the undertaker, I'm looking for the uppertaker, and he'd just swing that, he'd swing that, uh, you know, that 
snotty old thing. <laughs> they didn't have the coronavirus, I guess, back then. <laughs> if Jesus came tonight, I'd be pleased. Behold, he's coming with clouds. He says, every eye will see him at this coming. This is the second part of his coming. The first part is for his church. The second part will be to establish his kingdom on earth. There are things that he does before that, but it's ultimately to establish his kingdom on earth. And that's what he's talking about when he puts down all of the enemies that are against him, when he sets everything right and he rules over the affairs of mankind. That's what he's talking about here. The only eyes that will see him at the rapture are the eyes of those who are believers in Jesus. But when he comes that second time to establish his kingdom, everybody living in that day will see him coming. They will know that he's coming. And all the tribes of the earth, he says, will mourn. I missed a phrase. Even those who pierced him. That's the Jews. The Jews who have rejected him for the most part, though I know believing Jews. The Jewish people, for the most part, have rejected Jesus. At that point, those who pierced him will notice him. They'll know him. They'll recognize him. And all the tribes of the earth, all the peoples of the earth will mourn. Every time you see mourning in the book of Revelation, it's always in, ref it's always in reference to unbelievers. And so you have every eye that sees him. You see the Jewish people will see him. And all of the nations of the earth, even the unbelievers of the earth, will see him even so, he says, amen. Even so, uh, he says, amen. He continues, Jesus is speaking now. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus is everything. He is everything. To say something is the beginning and the end, to say that something is the alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega, the last letter of the now, the Greek alphabet is to say he is everything in between. Jesus is everything. I wish we could all appreciate that more and more. I wish, I hope, I pray that I can appreciate that more and more, that Jesus is everything. He's the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. There's his eternality again. He's always existed. He exists today. He will always exist who is, who was, and who is to come. And then he uses that word, that powerful word, the Almighty. <laughs> he is the Almighty God. Amen? Amen? I am thankful that we serve the Almighty God. John picks up in verse 9, and he again identifies himself. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion. Now remember, this letter is going to churches, to believers who are being persecuted. He's both, your, he's both your brother, those of you that are receiving this, he's both your brother and your companion in the tribulation. I mean, these trials that we're going through, I'm going through them with you and kingdom. I'm going to have that place of rule with Christ and the patience of Christ. He says, I was on the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God. Why was he on the Isle of Patmos? For the word of God. For the testimony of Jesus Christ. Here's an old man. He's, he's probably in his middle 90s. He might be a little younger than that. He might be a little older than that. Somewhere in his 90s probably. And he's been banished from Ephesus where he had been ministering, where he had been carrying out his ministry amongst people. By the way, that's, that's a great thing to remember. You don't ever retire from the Lord's work. 
You may have to slow down. You may have to change your, uh, your role. But unlike a job where you retire, all of us, uh, you know, have those kinds of jobs where we are able to retire at some point. If we choose to do so, you never retire from serving God, no matter how old you are. Here's a man in his 90s, probably as much as 95. He could be as much as 96 or 7, maybe even 8, 98. And he's been banished from Ephesus out to the Isle of Patmos. This was something that the Roman government did. Uh, there were two kinds of banishment. Uh, one kind was a political banishment, and you were banished to the isle, and you were there forever. You were, never, you were never allowed to come back. You lost your Roman citizenship. You could never return. Another kind of banishment, the kind that is likely the one that John, is, that John had to experience is a banishment for a period of time. And it might have looked like to the Christians in Ephesus that this was a disaster unfolding around them. But what they couldn't see is that God was putting him on that island and going to put him in that cave so that God could give to him the final book of the, of the uh, canon of the New Testament so that we would know what the future day holds and we would know that he was going to rule and reign over it all. There's even going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so John's out here on Patmos. By the way, after about two years, John is allowed to leave Patmos. Uh, that's why we, we, we know he wasn't a part of that political uh, banishment. He was allowed to come back to Ephesus. Tradition tells us that he was allowed to come back to Ephesus. He continued his ministry. What is he now? Well up into his late 90s, maybe 100. He's still ministering and that he dies. Tradition says that he dies in the city of Ephesus as he continues his ministry. And so this is the John we're talking about. This is the man who's receiving this revelation that comes from the Father through his Son to an angel that's given to John. It's ultimately going to be taken to the churches so that it can be read aloud so that everybody can hear it and everybody can obey what it says and everybody can be comforted by the truth that Jesus is coming again. He goes on in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is the first, in my estimation, this is the first mention of, the, of Sunday as the Lord's day. Some prophecy scholars believe the phrase Lord's day is really just another way to say the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament phrase uh, that's a prophetic phrase that speaks about the coming of the Lord and about the timing of the coming of the Lord. But if that was what God wanted to communicate to us through John, why didn't he just use the phrase that everybody already used and everybody already knew? I'm of the opinion that he's talking about being in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that what we should be? Filled with the Spirit, listening to the Spirit. He that has, hear, he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to him. Isn't that what we find in the, in the parables Jesus gives? We want to become sensitive because God speaks to us through his spirit that guides us into his word. So he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a trumpet, a loud voice as of a trumpet. It's not literally a trumpet. It's as of a trumpet. It's a loud voice. It sounds clear. It's, it's got a call to it that calls you to attention. And what does it say? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, John, 
what you see, I want you to write it in a book. I want you to send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Well, if you heard a trumpet like this speaking to you and telling you to write all of these things that you're now receiving by way of the angel who's delivering this to you, don't you think you'd want to turn and see who it is that's talking to you? You wouldn't? Sure you would. Sure you would. He says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Can we stop there? These are what you think of as the menorah, the seven branches of the candlestick. There's a candlestick in the Old Testament tabernacle, in the Old Testament temple, in the holy place, not back in the holy of holies, behind the curtain, the veil, but out here in the front where the table of showbread, where the incense is being burned, there's a, there's a, a candle, a menorah that's out here, seven, seven what do you call it? Uh, I've lost my word here. Uh, it's got uh, these seven branches to it, and they're all lit. And what are they doing inside the holy place? They're providing the light that is needed. Now, we know who these seven candlesticks are. He just told you. They're the churches. What are churches supposed to be in the world in which we live? We're supposed to be the light. In the darkness of the world, the church is supposed to be the candlestick. And so we, hear, we see, see here the symbolism of what the church is. We're not supposed to take a lamp and put a bushel over it. We're, that's individually and personally. As a church, we're not supposed to let the candlestick go out. I was thinking this afternoon about those two other churches where I was a member before I became a member of this church. And neither of those two churches exist anymore. And you go home and you ride by those places and it's really a strange feeling. It's an awkward feeling. But you know what? The light in a church can go out. The, light, the Lord can remove the light of a church if a church isn't faithful. And he turns and he sees these seven golden lampstands. Let me turn my notes over here so I'll make sure I cover the things I want to cover. And you're about to see a picture of Jesus that is a post-resurrection appearance of Christ, but it isn't like anything you've seen in any other post-resurrection uh, presentation of Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, some of you may remember a few years ago, I preached Revelation chapter 1 and this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And it didn't go very well. <laughs> It was one of those sermons I said, ah, that wasn't the right one for that Sunday. How did I miss that? How did I miss that? And you'll see why. Because he's going to turn. He's going to see the voice that's speaking to him. He says, in the midst of the seven lampstands, verse 13, one like the Son of Man. Why does he say like or as like? Because the description you're about to hear isn't just exactly like a physical man would be, but you know that this is Christ. You're going to see some elements of this description of the resurrected Jesus that are, are a little unique, that they have to be symbolic, but nevertheless, it's Jesus that we're seeing, one like the Son of Man. 
clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, that was a common garment for the priest. It was a garment that was, you know, starts here at the shoulders and flows outward as it goes down, and it would be gathered, not like we do, men, with our belts down here. You know, this, this, I have to keep cinching it up or uncinching it. <laughs> uh, you, you know what I'm saying? We didn't wear it down here around your waist. They, they, they took it and they, they had a belt above here. And the purpose of it was the purpose of making it look like you were flowing. You know, there was a, there was a flowing aspect to it. Um, a lot of years ago, <clears throat> I was invited to participate in a funeral here in town of a man who had passed away. And this church is much more formal and much more uh, ceremonial than, than we are. No, no criticism of that. I'm just saying that it's different, that, you know, without a tie and, you know, often with a, just a coat on. <clears throat> that wouldn't have gone over well. They wore robes. And so I, I got there early and went back to meet the pastor in his office and sat down with a few members of his staff. And he said, we have a robe for you. And I said, I'd rather not have to wear the robe if you don't mind. And I, I never forget, he said, if you don't have a conviction against it, I would appreciate it if you'd wear the robe. So I said, well, I don't have a conviction against it. Um, so I put the robe on. Only time I've ever had to wear a robe like that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But the only time I ever had to ro- wear a robe like that, Mary and my children were at the funeral. They were sitting on the back rows of the, of the church. And they didn't know I was coming in in a robe. <laughs> and um, and the uh, J.D. or was it J.D. was J.D. or, or Reba, one of the two, uh, Rebecca, one of the two, that said, Dad, it looked like you were just floating down the aisle. We couldn't see your shoes. It was like Casper, you know. You're just floating down the aisle. This particular garment is very important here in Revelation. It's this flowing garment that was worn by the priest, but it has a gold belt. That's different. The kings wore the gold belts. So again, we see the image of the one that we're, we're looking at who, who was both priest with the robe and king. He's clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His hay, head and hair were white like wool. That's purity. You're looking at the resurrected Jesus. He's pure through and through. As white as snow, he says. His eyes like a flame of fire. He can see right through you. Uh, He can tell what's in your heart. He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows what you're thinking at this moment. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. He knows where your mind is at any moment. He has these eyes. They're like a flame of fire. That's also a symbol of judgment. His feet are like fine brass. And brass in 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 the Scripture is a symbol of judgment. So he's pure. He's got these eyes that see right through you. He's got feet that are ready to exercise judgment and justice. As, it, as, if refined in a, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, this powerful sounding voice. Mary and I rode the Maid of the Mist up close to the Niagara Falls in the millions of gallons. I forget how many it is, but the millions of gallons of water that pour over the falls, you don't get that close, but you get close enough to hear. I mean, the power. You get the idea of what he's talking about? The power of his voice as he speaks. He had in his right hand seven stars. I'm going to tell you who that is. Well, I'm going to hold on to it till we get to the end of the chapter. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, you don't ever see a man who has a sword coming out of his mouth, do you? So that's where it says it's like the Son of Man. 
We're seeing a, a, a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, and we recognize this is unique. This appearance of Jesus is unique in that some aspects of it are, are symbolic. He has the sword. What is the sword? It's his word. Isn't that how Hebrews 4, is it verse 12, says that the word of God is sharp? like a two-edged sword that divides asunder the soul from the spirit. The word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, is the sword of the spirit. The word of God is coming out of his mouth. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. I wonder if it was a little bit like what uh, Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw for the first time the glory of the true glory of Jesus briefly for a few moments when the glory of Jesus began to shine through. That's the image that we get and what happens. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I have to stop here and just say one thing. I realize we're getting close to the end here, but listen. I've read some blogs and I've read some chapters out of books where people say they've seen God and they've seen the Lord and Jesus appeared to them, and I'm not the one to judge as to who has or who hasn't seen the Lord. But I'm always suspicious when somebody says they've seen the Lord in the first place you find them isn't on their face. Because what you find when somebody actually sees these depictions of God appearing to them John here is you find John where? On his face. You know, there's the song, you know, what am I going to do when I get to heaven? Am, am I going to sing? Am I going to dance? Am I, I think the first thing we're going to do is we're going to bow. I think we're going to fall on our faces and we're going to say, to you alone is glory and to you alone who is worthy of praise and to you alone is all the thanksgiving. John sees this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, somewhat unique. Nevertheless, you see his purity. You see his ability to see through and to make right judgments. You see the judgment on his feet. And as you see him, uh, you, you, you are awestruck. You are awestruck by his presence so that John falls. And he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. And here he identifies himself. I'm Jesus. I am the first and the last. He goes on identifying himself. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Amen. Jesus never dies again. I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. Death is the process of death when we, our heart stops beating. Hades is where we go. It's the holding place of death. Of, of the dead. And who has the keys to all of that? Who determines when you die? By the way, the, the, the traditional understanding of Hades prior to the crucifixion was that there were two parts, a paradise part and a punishment part. That's why Jesus says to the thief on the cross, uh, today you will be with me where? In paradise. That's why in Luke chapter 16, he talks about the rich man and Lazarus, and one goes to the place of punishment, and one goes to Abraham's bosom, uh, paradise. At the resurrection of Jesus, he took those that were in the para paradise part of Hades, and he took them into heaven. 
And now they're in that prepared place for the children of God. But what remains is Hades. There's even some indication that he kicks the wall out of Hades to enlarge it. And those that, are de- those, those that are dead, those who have died without Jesus as unbelievers are held in this place called, called Hades, a place of punishment, awaiting the final judgment, the great white throne judgment when they'll be cast into the what? What's their final destination? The lake of fire. But who holds the key to all of that? Do you know what it means to hold the key? It means I got control. Right? I got, I didn't bring my keys out here. I don't have control right this moment. He has the key. He says, I am he who lives, was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of Hades and of death. He determines when we die. He determines who gets out of Hades and when they get out of Hades. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen. Here's the outline for the book. Write the things which you've seen, the things which are. What you've seen is Jesus. You just saw Jesus. The things that are are the messages that are going to go to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this. When you get to chapter 4 and you move into the heavenly scene, I want you to write that as well. I want you to tell them what you've seen in seeing me. I want you to tell these churches what you have seen. And then I want you to tell about what you're going to see, about the future that's coming. Write these things, he says. Now he gives you the mystery. Remember those stars that were in his right hand? The mystery. Remember the candlesticks that represented the churches? The mystery. By the way, the word mysterion, the word for mystery, doesn't mean like a mystery novel where you're reading and you don't know who committed the crime until you get to the last chapter and you find out who did all these bad things in all the previous chapters. You can't know any of that. Uh, it's not it's, you know, going to be revealed in that, in that fashion. A mystery here is something that you could never know unless God revealed it to you. He's revealing something that you could never know about the candlesticks The mystery of the seven stars. You remember those seven stars in his right hand, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. Can I just stop here and take a moment and I'll finish. I'm three minutes over time. Are you all still with me? I promise I won't go more than another three or four minutes. Um, the seven stars. What are these stars? Who are these stars? Well, sometimes angels are referred to by this particular word translated here as stars. And, and we do know from uh, 1 Corinthians that there's some interaction that takes place between churches and the angelic world. Um, that you, there may be an angel amongst us. It would be a fallen one, but uh, there, may be a, there may be an angel amongst us. There's some interaction. It says about women wearing coverings over their head. And that day, they showed their submission to their husbands by wearing coverings on their heads. when they went. That was the custom of that day. Um, because the angels are looking in. The angels are looking in. It could be that these stars are the angels. But it's also true that these stars can be the pastors. And in my estimation, that's what he's talking about here. 
Uh, These messengers, that's what the word means, these messengers are the angels of the seven churches. These these stars are the messengers of these seven churches. Who is it that's going to take what John is writing down? Who is it that's going to take it and read it out loud to that church? It's going to be the pastor. He's going to gather his people together. He's going to stand before his people, and he's going to read what John writes down for those seven churches. I I believe that there's a comforting word, and this is a little self-serving because I'm the pastor here, and we've got several pastors in the room, so it's self-serving for us. But I believe there's a sense in which God has pastors in his right hand. He provides and he protects and he empowers um, and those churches are supposed to be led by those uh, men of God. Uh, you know, pastors and preachers are as human as anybody else. And in the day in which we live, there's been a lot of pastors who've done a lot of bad things. And they're human, and they do really stupid things, fleshly things. God forbid that I would do some of those stupid things. God helped me to finish well. Uh, to get to the end and finish well. But be be reminded that though there are some bad apples, most of the pastors I know, 99.9% of the pastors I know are good men of God. Men who love God. They all have different abilities. They all have different capabilities. They all have different uh, you know, personalities, they all have different styles of ministry. They all go about things in a little different way, guided by the Scripture as they read it and they understand it. But nevertheless, they are God's men. I don't believe women can pastor churches. I don't believe a pastor can, I don't believe a woman can be the husband of one wife. Well, in modern society, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. You can't. Uh, You can't be anything you want to be. But I believe that the Lord has pastors in his hand. And that's a comfort to all of us pastors, to all the pastor friends that I know. You know, sometimes uh, uh, the greatest knowledge that you have is that the Lord is with you. The Lord is helping you. That the Lord is sustaining you. The Lord is empowering you. The Lord is protecting you. And you're in his right hand. And you know what God can do? God can take those stars out of the church, those angels out of the church, take the messengers away. He can put out the candlestick in the church, and the church ceased to exist. I mean individual, local churches, not the church, the universal church, the local church. They can cease to exist if people don't follow the word of God. And don't stay true to the things of God. And thus we conclude chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3 we pick up and uh, we begin looking at the seven churches. And we will look at a pattern that develops. So that we probably won't read every verse of chapters 2 and 3. But we we will read what we need to read in order to see the pattern again and again. So spend this week reading chapters 2 and 3. See if you can pick up the pattern that's repeated for every one of those churches. And uh, see what you can learn before we even come to the uh, next Sunday evening service, uh, next Sunday evening Bible study.
God bless you for being here. Thank you for listening to me talk for 45 minutes. Thank you for listening to the Word of God. I thank the Lord for a church that loves the Word of God. Um, there's a lot better communicators than I am, but there's, you know, the Word of God is the same everywhere. And I thank God for, for a church that loves His Word.